Well, we are in Psalm 40 tonight. Uh, the Messiah fulfills God's will. As I uh, have been working my way through these Messianic Psalms, we find that uh, there are what we might call some prophetic Messianic nuggets kind of scattered throughout the Psalms. And uh, when you put it all together, it's a beautiful big picture of the Messiah from a lot of different angles. Psalm 40 is another psalm written by David, who wrote at least half of the psalms. Uh, we are not told the occasion of this psalm, but verses 6 through 8 are clearly applied to the Messiah in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, making this a definitive messianic psalm. Well, David wrote out of his own experience, but then the Holy Spirit took David's experience and applied it to the greater David, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and often we see the Spirit taking David's experience and then applying it to Christ in an even greater way. <clears throat> now, in many ways, the experience of David was really a kind of a prophetic precursor to that of the coming Messiah, who was the son of David. Uh, we can break the psalm generally down into, whoops, let's back up here, uh, to thanksgiving for deliverance in the first ten verses, and then prayer for deliverance in verses 11 through 17. Now, some think this seems a little inverted, right? It seems a little backwards. Normally, we think about praying for deliverance and then thanking God for the deliverance that he has brought about in answer to prayer. But Psalm 40 reverses the order. Now, what is likely in view is that in verses 1 through 10, David is remembering a past deliverance of how God has worked. And then on that basis, in verses 10 through 17, he is praying for deliverance from a present difficult situation. So this is a great reminder. Uh, when we're going through a very difficult time, it's good to reflect back on what God has done in the past and what he's, what he's already brought us through in answer to prayer. Well, that gives encouragement as we seek God in the present for whatever we are currently facing. So the psalm begins, Psalm 40, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. Waited patiently is more literally waiting, I waited. Seems a little redundant, doesn't it? Waiting, I waited. Well, what were you doing? I was waiting. Sometimes the most spiritual thing a person can do is wait on the Lord. Sometimes uh, we are called to wait. There's a waiting. And he says, I waited patiently. Although for most or many of us, that's not so easy to do. It's easy to preach. It's not so easy to do. But God's timing is perfect. And so we need to wait on him. And in waiting, what should we be doing? Just waiting? Uh, well, we should be praying as we wait. That's what David did. And God responded. He says, he inclined to me. Inclined is the idea of, of bending over or stooping over. It's like the, the God of the universe stooped over to, to incline to help David. Now, obviously, uh, as I say, David was waiting uh, or was praying while he was waiting. And praying and waiting do often go together. Now, think about this. How honored we are that God listens to us. 
Uh, you ever think about that? As, as you were talking, God is listening. Uh, we, we are honored that God would listen to us. Um, I don't know if you ever had this experience, guys, but sometimes my wife would be talking to me and she'd say, are you listening to me? <laughs> I hate to admit it, but the, that sometimes happens to me. She's in the nursery here, so I don't even have a witness here. But anyway, uh, but, uh, you know, it's really kind of a, a respectful thing when somebody gives you their ear and, and they really pay attention to what you're saying and, and they're in tune and, and tr- trying to listen. Uh, actually, if, if I happen to be watching a football game now, or so, I've been trying to do this. If my wife comes in and she's trying to talk with me, instead of kind of keep, you know, <laughs> I, I turn it off so I can listen to my wife. Or at least mute it. I mean, I kind of still see. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Uh, but we, we are so honored that God listens to us. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to me. I mean, a lot of people don't listen, right? I mean, you have all kinds of situations where they're not listening. But God's listening. He hears our prayers and he responds according to his own perfect timing. In accordance with his will, which is best for us and ultimately for his glory. So David recalls, as he waited, God ultimately did answer. And he says, and he brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. What a beautiful verse of deliverance. A horrible pit of miry clay is is figurative language for a terrible situation in which David could not get himself out. It's like you're down in a, in a pit of mud and you're up to your waist. You can't get out. And if somebody doesn't come and rescue you, you're going to die right there. That's the picture here. And God came to his rescue. Now, we could make lots of applications here. You know, he talks about this horrible pit. Uh, you know, we could, maybe a pit of despair, a pit of resentment, a pit of immorality a pit of abuse, a pit of pride, a pit of false accusations and slander, a pit of... All kinds of things that uh, we might be caught up in. We don't know exactly what this pit was. He doesn't give us specifics. But it was horrible. And David needed deliverance. Well, in response to waiting upon God in prayer, God intervened and brought him up out of the slime pit and set his feet upon a rock and established his steps. So God put him on firm ground and got him going again. Well, in response, David said, verse 3, He's put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Well, this this occasion of deliverance called for a song of praise. A new song. A new deliverance calls for a new song. That would be a vibrant testimony, causing others to reverence and trust in the Lord. Indeed, when God answers our prayers and delivers us, we should make much of it to the glory of God and thus allow Him to use it in the lives of other people as well. Verse 4, Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust. You see, what he has just described in verses 1 through 3 really is born out of trust. The reason you wait on the Lord is because you're trusting in in the Lord. You're waiting on the Lord because you're trusting Him. You're praying to Him because you're trusting Him. And so he says in verse 4, Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud nor nor, 
nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. God blesses trust that is expressed in waiting on the Lord in prayer. Uh, sometimes uh, we're praying about something, and then and then there's an amazing answer, and we, and we all it's like, wow, that, that was amazing. Uh, I don't know why it surprises us. We have an amazingly big God who can do the impossible. But uh, God blesses trust that, that waits on him in prayer. And this is in contrast to the proud who don't look to the Lord. They're independent. Oh, I don't, I'm, I can, we can do it. Or who turn to the lies of idolatry. Uh, the idea of turning aside to lies is probably uh, the lies of idolatry. Those that would look to idolatry for help. Well, David then praises God for his many wonderful works. Do you see it there? Uh, many, O oh Lord my God, are your wonderful works. I mean, it's not like God just very rarely intervenes. He's doing many wonderful works. He does lots of things. Continually, he is intervening on our behalf in one way or another. And David says, his thoughts towards us are innumerable. God is constantly thinking about and working on, our, on behalf of his own. And now that in itself is really a beautiful thought. Uh, he is constantly thinking about us, and I think in turn we should constantly be thinking about him. I think he's thinking about us a whole lot more than we are thinking about him, right? And that brings us to the Messianic verses of 6 through 8. Again, this was David's testimony. But then it is also applied to the greater David in an even greater manner as seen in Hebrews 10, 5 through 9. So let's get into it. Verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Note the structure of the verse. We've got sacrifice and offering you did not desire. And then that middle statement. And then burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Right in the middle is what God does want. My ears you have opened. Well, David got the point that the real thing that God was after was a response that begins with ears that are attuned to listening to God and then carrying out what he wants in obedience. The main thing here that's being emphasized here is that God wants an obedient heart, an obedient response. That's the major emphasis in this whole context right here in verses 6 through 8. And it was that heart of obedience that ultimately led Jesus all the way to the cross that was so precious to God the Father and, and why he has exalted him above all as the God-man. Well, it's not that God wanted nothing to do with the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings. Rather, it's that the ultimate thing that God really wanted was a right heart. You see, only if sacrifices and offerings were brought with a right heart were they pleasing to God. Ultimately, before God, it's all about the heart. This text totally blows away that which is merely outward and formal religion. Uh, back in Samuel, we have this verse, 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great 
delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Uh, Saul didn't quite get this. Rituals are what God... No, God's not... The rituals are not the essential thing. It's about obeying. In Micah chapter 6, same spirit, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Look at this large sacrifice. 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And again, David, you know, when he sinned so terribly with the issue of Bathsheba, uh, in coming to repentance, said this, You do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. That's not the crux of the issue. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. God wants a right heart. Above all, God wants an obedient heart. Nothing else really matters if that's not in place. And if the heart is right, everything else will fall into place. The Old Testament rituals, even those ordained by God, only had real meaning before God if they reflected an obedient heart that wanted to do God's will. Apart from a heart that wants to obey, they were just empty rituals that really were an offense to God. Now, when it says here, my ears you have opened, more literally, it is my ears you have dug. Now, some commentators think that the sense here connects with the practice in the Old Testament where a slave would indicate he wanted to serve his master forever by having his ear pierced. Take him to, take him to the door and, and put an all through his ear. Well, in my view, that's probably not what's in view here. Uh, in the case of the slave, the outer rim of the ear was bored through but the sense here seems to be that it's literally the hollowing out or the digging out of the ear to make the passage clear. The sense then is that the hearing would be unimpeded. And to hear perfectly corresponds to perfect obedience. Jesus often said, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. The sense is to respond uh, with faith that then obeys. In addition, ears is plural here in Psalm 40, verse 6, whereas just one ear would be pierced in the case of the slave in the Old Testament. So David is saying that God doesn't want just mere ritual obser observance, but rather a responsive heart of obedience. He wants ears that are sensitive to what he is saying and are obedient well, the critic at this point steps forward and claims to have found an error in the Bible. You see, the reason for this is that Hebrews 10.5, in quoting this verse, Psalm 40, verse 6, translates, My ears you have opened as a body you have prepared for me. Or a body you have prepared me. 
So uh, you see this, right? Here we are, Old Testament. Psalm 40, verse 6, my ears you have opened. We go into Hebrews, and it says, a body you have prepared for me. And it's a little different. My ears you have opened? A body you have prepared for me? So they say, see? He's quoting, he got it wrong. That's what they say. Well, what's the explanation? Well, here it is. The Holy Spirit is the divine author behind all of the scriptures. In quoting from Psalm 40, the writer of Hebrews, whoever it was, if you've got to have somebody, Paul's a pretty good choice, but we don't know. Uh, in quoting from Psalm 40, the writer of Hebrews quoted from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, and not the Hebrew. So he didn't go back to the Hebrew. He went to the Septuagint, to the Greek translation. And the Septuagint translated Psalm 40, verse 6, more generally in the sense of a body you have prepared for me. So it's an accurate quote of the Septuagint. Which brings across the main idea being developed in the context of the full surrender of obedience, which involves the whole person. Now here's the point. If the Holy Spirit wants to make application of Psalm 40, verse 6 in this way, who are we to argue? I'm not going to argue with the Holy Spirit. I just don't want to do that. I agree with William MacDonald. As to the authority for making such a change, the same Holy Spirit who first inspired the words in Psalm 40 certainly has the right to clarify them when he quotes it in the New Testament. I certainly agree with that. Amen to that. So what we have in Hebrews 10.5 is an inspired synecdoche. Now, a synecdoche is a figure of speech in which a part, here the ears, is given as representative of the whole, here the body. Thus, the New Testament, in making an inspired application, expands and explains the meaning as further applied to the Messiah at the time of his incarnation. The meaning is the same. The ears are to the body as the part to the whole. Well, to have your ears open, thus responsively obedient, is the equivalent of completely presenting your body to God for his service. And this it was the response of the Messiah at the time of the incarnation. We see this language, similar language, in Isaiah 50, the Lord has given me, this is related to the Messiah, has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Well, Hebrews then builds on this idea of complete obedient service, saying, God did not desire the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings. Although God instituted the Old Testament sacrificial system, yet they never really represented God's ultimate intention. They were merely shadows and types of something better to come. They were pictures. I mean, these sacrifices in the Old Testament were pictures. When they brought lambs, they were pictures. Now Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist introduces him as the lamb. The final, ultimate, complete lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world once and forever. So these were 
merely types and shadows of something better to come. These sacrifices never really satisfied God and were not the final solution to the sin problem. Both the sacrifices themselves were inadequate, as were those offering them up. Now, the answer was in God providing the Lamb of God, who represents the perfect obedience that was pleasing to God, even the obedience of the cross. Again, William MacDonald says, The Savior's ears were open to hear and to obey the will of his Father. It was with this attitude of willing and ready obedience that Christ came into the world. That's the attitude he had when he came into the world. David had that attitude. Christ had it in a superior way. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I come. Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written to me. For David, this had the sense that he was ready to live out the book regarding all that God had for him to do. And as a king, as we find in Deuteronomy 17, he was to make himself a scroll. He was to make himself his own copy of the Bible. And he was to read it every day so that he would remain humble and be the man that God wants him to be. Well, as for the greater David, the sense here is that Jesus made himself fully available in saying, Behold, I come. It's the sense that he came willing and ready to fulfill the will of God. And he came to completely do everything that God had prophetically written of him in the scroll of the book. There was nothing in God's book that he was not willing and ready to carry out. And he came with that attitude. Now the sense may also be here that uh, he indeed is the main subject of the book and he comes to fulfill it. Again, William MacDonald says, from cover to cover of the Old Testament, it was foretold not only that Christ would come into the world, but that he would come with an eager, ready spirit to do the will of God. When Jesus came, he said of the scriptures, these are they which testify of me, John 5, 39. After his resurrection, he said to the disciples on the Emmaus road, in Luke 24, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I love this quote from C.I. Schofield. I bring it up every once in a while because it's just that good. The Lord Jesus gave them the great key to understanding of scripture, that he himself is its subject. And that in him, the entire book finds its unity. Amen to that. Well, verse 8 continues the thought, I delight to do your will, oh my God, even if it's the cross. Yes, and yet in his humanness we see the struggle even in the garden, but, but I delight to do your will, oh my God, and your law is within my heart. Here's the main point. God wants a right heart that delights in doing his will. He wants a heart that is fully in tune with his law which is to say his word and his will. Yes, this expressed David's heart, but supremely that of Jesus the Messiah. You know, God loves a cheerful giver. And there will never be a more ready giver to do the will of the Father than that which we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. God gave Jesus a human body. And in the context of that body, the whole of his being 
was given over to doing the will of God. Obediently doing the will of God defined Jesus, even to the point of being obedient to the death of the cross. In John 4, 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In John 6, 38, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in John 8, 29, Jesus said of the Father, I always do those things that please him. And this is how it ended. In Isaiah 53, 11, he shall see the labor of his soul. This is God the Father. He shall see the labor of Jesus, the labor of his soul, and be satisfied. The work of the cross. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now, the context of quoting Psalm 46 through 8 in Hebrews 10, 5 through 9, is all about Christ's sacrifice on the cross, which was the ultimate expression of submission and obedience. That's the context in which this quote is made from Psalm 40. In this, Christ fully obeyed the will of the Father and completely fulfilled what God had prophetically had for him to do regarding his first coming. And one of the key things that made his sacrifice so acceptable to God the Father was his wholehearted desire to obey. No other sacrifice was ever offered up to God with this measure of wholehearted devotion and such pure devotion. It was precious, and it was satisfying to God. Hebrews 10 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I like to say Romans 8 is my favorite, but uh, Hebrews 10 is right there. There's a lot of them, actually, but Hebrews 10, it's a great chapter because it emphasizes the absolute and total sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. If you get this, you'll have it all. Uh, Notice what it says there. This follows uh, the quote here. Uh, But in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, following this commitment that we see of the Messiah that's quoted in reference to the Messianic Psalm of Psalm 40, it goes on to say, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Reminds me of a lot of ritualistic religion today. Going through all the motions, going through all this and that sacrament and this and all this stuff. What? These things never really do anything. Now you're going through a lot of religious motions, but these priests, and by the way, the priests were standing all the time. There was never any chairs. No chairs at the, the temple. Why? Their work was never done. There's always one more sacrifice. Well, another sacrifice. God's never satisfied, it's never enough. But this man, Jesus, the God-man, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. You know why he sat down? What did he say at the end? What was the last dying words? It is finished. When it's finished, you can sit down. It was done. Sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, By one offering, the sacrifice at the cross, by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. 
He has done it in this one offering. This is the gospel of grace. We don't do it. Our trust is in Jesus Christ alone as our Savior. He alone deserves the glory and the credit. We get to heaven, we're not going to be saying, we did it. (laughs) It was teamwork, Jesus. No, no, no. All glory to God. Worthy is a lamb who was slain. That's what the saints in heaven are saying. All the glory goes to him because he alone did it. Wasn't anybody else with him on the cross. Well, this sacrifice, born out of a pure heart of obedience, resulted in an offering that was so satisfying that it perfected all true believers forever. How precious and how glorious is this? I cannot imagine what eternity will be like. You know, the Bible says our lives are like a vapor. And really, time is very short. We had somebody visiting church today. You know, I married them. Oh, my goodness, how long has it been? 35 years ago. And I said, you were just a kid. And it seems to me like you should still be a kid. <laughs> seems like it was just a few days ago. And he said, yeah, it does. It goes fast. How glorious that for all eternity, we will be celebrating the perfect obedience of Christ. That as Paul says, was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2.8. And Paul goes on to say that this was so pleasing to God the Father, that he has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, fittingly, verse 9 follows, saying, I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, for you yourselves know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. That is deliverance. Salvation means deliverance. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. In other words, David saw really after God works in such a great way and takes you out of this mire, what should you do? Well, you should praise God. You should commit yourself to being obedient to him with all your heart as it's just expressed in the previous verses. And then you should publicly praise God. One of the ways we bring glory to God is to praise him publicly in the assembly of his people. Before God, I believe this is is the sweet savor of true worship. And then as we come to verse 11, the tone changes. David now switches from praise for past deliverance to now petition for present deliverance. David, in effect, wants God to do it again. He's now in another. Boy, what God did back here. and Oh, what a tremendous thing. And he praised God for it. But now he's got another situation. You know, isn't that something? We come through one major deal and and we don't go far down the road and we got another one. That's the way it was for David. Verse 11, do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. All kinds of stuff. It's feeling the pressure. My iniquities have overtaken me, so I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. I don't know what kind of sin issues he was dealing with, but he says they were more than the hairs of his head. Clearly, not everything in this psalm is applicable to the Messiah, as he never sinned. But here David says that his many iniquities are more than the hairs of his head. 
The word iniquity means to bend, distort, or twist. It's the idea of perversion. It is a disobedient twisting or distorting that is contrary to God's will and his word. Now, we don't know what the current occasion was. Some have suspected, because he is saying this, that it may have been in relationship to running for his life from, from Absalom, which was a consequence of his great sin. But, but we really don't know. That's surmising. We don't know. He doesn't say. Verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Now verses 13 through 17 are almost identical to Psalm 70. You would go to Psalm 70 and read, you would see it's pretty much the same thing. Well, clearly these people were trying to destroy David, and they were vicious in their treatment of him. He appealed to God for divine intervention once again, such as he has known in the past, as referenced earlier in the chapter. And he prays very specifically that God would deal with them, and he pours out his heart concerning their vicious taunting and ridicule, as they say, aha, aha. Verse 16, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. And the sense is, let the Lord be magnified for an- in answering prayer for our deliverance. What a beautiful verse. What a great prayer. Let all who seek God find joy and gladness in him. David's end goal desire is that all those who love God's truth of deliverance continually say, the Lord be magnified. But then he says, as he concludes the psalm, but, but, I'm poor and needy. Yet the Lord thinks upon me, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. David was poor in the sense of having no resources to deal with this current situation. He was needy in that he was very vulnerable. But he finds comfort in the fact that God thinks upon him. Twice in this chapter, he underscores this comforting reality. Remember back there in verse 5? Your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted. They are more than can be numbered. And now here again in verse 17, yet the Lord thinks upon me. What a great truth. Whatever we're going through, the Lord knows about it. He's thinking about us. See, I wonder if anybody knows. I wonder if God knows. He cares. Someone has well said that the I am and the you are of Psalm 40, verse 17, says it all. You see what it says? But I am poor and needy. You are my help and my deliverer. The psalm ends with David asking that God not delay in coming to his aid. The psalm begins with David waiting patiently and concludes with him pleading that God not delay, finds himself in the waiting position once again. Indeed, in dire circumstances, waiting is hard. And yet what a great consolation the Lord thinks upon me. God desires sold-out obedience from the heart, and sometimes that is sorely tested in the context of of waiting. But David provides a good reminder that God is a God of deliverance. Blessed 
is the man who makes the Lord his trust. God help us to trust in our great God, even in very trying times. We find ourselves in the pit, in the pit of despair, where we are reduced to waiting patiently on the Lord. And there are those times. There's nothing you can do about the situation. It's a ter- I need God's help. Help! That's where David was. Well, God help us to trust in our great God. Let this be our watchword. Blessed is the person who makes the Lord his trust. Keep the faith and remember God is ever thinking about you. No matter what you're going through, even in the hardest of times. Let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer.